Welcome to the LDS Mission Cast, a podcast to educate and inspire in the great cause of missionary work. This is your host, Nick Galetti. In a previous episode, episode two of the podcast, actually, we had on Dr. Daniel Peterson to talk about things missionaries and members should know about Islam. Now, a good part of missionary work is meeting and building a relationship with individuals of other faiths. Today's interview will be with Chelsea Woodruff, who is president of an organization called B'nai Shalom, and they can be found at the website mormonsandjews.org. This group was founded as a fellowshipping organization for those individuals who come into the LDS Church from a Jewish background. She helps us to learn some wonderful things about the faith traditions and teachings that have informed even some LDS theology, as well as helping to correct some teachings or statements that have been perpetuated that can be hurtful to believe, let alone share with others. Now, following our interview, I have some thoughts on this subject that I think will enrich your appreciation of some basic gospel teachings when applying some of this Hebraic context to the scriptures that we're talking about. So here now is our Skype interview with Chelsea Woodruff. The gathering of Israel, ye elders of Israel, Jews and Gentiles, these are phrases that we often use in our discourse as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we don't often understand the connections between Mormonism and the Hebrew traditions from those that are geographically or politically Jewish or the actual Jewish faith, which is rich in historical roots. It's also quite easy for us as Latter-day Saints to perpetuate some folk doctrines or teachings regarding things we treat as common, things like even the Ten Commandments. We want to help people navigate this beautifully rich yet distinct theology that is in Jewish traditions and talk about those with respect to Mormonism. And we have on our, as our guest for this episode, Chelsea Woodruff, who is president of a nonprofit organization called, and I may pronounce this wrong, B'nai Shalom. Is that right? That is correct. It is B'nai Shalom. <laughs> yes. Which is essentially a translation of, of what? What does that mean? Children of peace. Children of peace. Well, welcome, Chelsea. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. So we want to give people, our listeners, some introduction as to who you are and what B'nai Shalom is as an organization. So how did it start? How did you get involved with it? Well, first of all, uh, it started back in the 1960s uh, with some very high-profile Jewish leaders who joined the LDS Church. We have someone who is still active in our organization and well-known in Utah circles is Daniel Rona. He was one of our founding members, uh, Harry Glick, Horowitz. They're common household Jewish names, people who joined the LDS Church and were looking for a social gathering to help them navigate what it meant to them to be Jewish and LDS. And so it started as just gatherings in their home, grew into a more formal organization that is that social and spiritual support for members of the LDS church and their interested friends. Me personally, I was basically raised in the organization. My mom joined the LDS Church from Orthodox Judaism, 
and struggled with that change in identity, they took her in and gave her a place to call home. As long as I can remember, we have been actively going to gatherings that informed my identity as I grew and developed my own testimony of the LDS Church. Excellent. Well, I think it's important because in this case, and especially when talking with any other religion or culture, that words matter. So let's make sure that we are using some of the correct terminology that respects both faith traditions. Maybe we can go through some of those words, some of those distinctions. So first, let's maybe address the distinction between someone who is Israeli or someone versus someone who is Jewish. Are there differences? What are those? Things like that. Absolutely. Well, Israeli is the nation of Israel. So someone who has Israeli citizenship is Israeli. An Israeli person can be from any religion. The Israeli constitution protects religious freedom. So Daniel Rona is Israeli. He was actually born in Israel and has Israeli citizenship. Jewish, then, is a person who, through their matrilineal lineage, their mother's line, has ancestry from the tribe of Judah. Uh, That would be what it means to be Jewish racially. Uh, Then there's also religious Judaism and cultural Judaism. So if someone is called, if someone says, I'm Jewish, that's not that clear. You you need to go a little further as to how they're Jewish. Is that fair? Uh, that is fair. There are many different definitions, and even within religious Judaism, there are divisions. Divisions meaning what? Different approaches to the faith? Different approaches to the faith. Just like anyone who's LDS will have heard the word, uh, the words Sadducees and Pharisees. In modern times, we have Orthodox Judaism, Hasidic Judaism, Conservative Judaism, Liberal Judaism, and even Messianic Judaism. Which are Jewish people that believe that Christ did come. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And, and that he's divine, I should say. It's that's yes. not the, the divinity of Je- Jesus. They believe that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah, correct. What are some other common phrases that we might use that maybe even be used incorrectly? There are many different things. One that is particularly hurtful to people who are Jewish but is used quite often in the LDS church is to say that that Jews were cursed because they rejected Christ, or that Jews are blind to the divinity of Christ. For our over 1,000 worldwide members, the vast majority of whom were raised as LDS and have received very clear personal revelation on the divinity of Christ— It is very hurtful when people imply that because the leaders of the Jews during the life of Christ rejected him, that that meant that all Jews ever since have rejected Christ and will always reject Christ until the second coming. That's one little thing that comes up quite often. And I understand that kind of connected to that is this folk teaching, if you will, that some have asserted that the Holocaust was somehow connected or as punishment for the crucifixion. That is, that is very strongly perpetrated still, yes. 
And we've had members impacted by that claim and from both sides. There are Jews who reject our members because they have joined the LDS Church and believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that they have turned their back on their Holocaust ancestors. Uh, We have members, many members, who are first-generation descendants of Holocaust survivors or those who did not survive the Holocaust and have suffered the implication that their religious beliefs were to blame for that. To me, I can name like 30 different ways to prove that is a false teaching, but yet somehow it's, it's made its way, and that's really unfortunate. I mean, even our second article of faith would imply that, that, that there's totally disconnected thoughts there. But uh, anyway, you know, that, that happens, but you, you're clearing that up. They're totally disconnected. Correct. They are totally disconnected. And truly, for those who are the studiers of history, uh, for example, my grandparents on my dad's side were Christians. However, uh, my grandpa's brother was killed in a concentration camp. As Christians, there were Jews, there were Christians, there were gypsies, there were many, many people for many reasons uh, killed by the Nazis. It was not just Jews, although Jews were definitely the highest percentage in the genocide. To imply that Jewish faith and God brought that on the Jewish people as a punishment is absolutely insane. It, it is disrespectful. It is rude, especially then to attribute that to people who are generations beyond that now. Well, while we're talking about some of these things that we would say are myths that we're debunking, uh, one of the other ones was that the law of Moses was done away with or has often been called a lesser law. What, what do you say to those people that say that? Christ said in the scriptures that he came to fulfill the law. Fulfilling the law is meeting the law. He gave the law. So Christ is the law. He didn't come to make some of it correct and some of it incorrect or some of it applicable and some of it not. He came to show that as the giver of the law, he kept his word and that he continues to keep his word, that he is the same in the past and today and forever. So while traditional practices related to the law may change, the law itself continues to be in force. There are many of our members who still uh, practice, for example, the holy days that were mandated in scripture. And as you study the rich cultural history and traditions that lead you back to scripture over and over again for the practice of the holy days, they all point to Christ. He didn't come to do away with Passover. Every part of Passover testifies of Jesus Christ. He came to fulfill the purpose of having given us Passover and to show that he keeps his commitments. He keeps his covenants. So, yeah, there's the idea that the law of Moses was done away with. It just robs our members of the richness 
of understanding of the symbolism and the depth with which the law and the gospel were created to testify of Jesus Christ. One of the things that I think is kind of evidence of that is we we talk about the Ten Commandments, and, and we see that in the first four, we talk about how these are essentially ways to love God. And in the next six, it's essentially how to love our neighbor. So, when Christ came and was asked, what are the greatest commandments in the law? He didn't say, don't worry about that. That's done away. He said, love God and love your neighbor, which is the Ten Commandments kind of parsed down. And so, I think that there's things like that that go to support this idea that the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, these aren't lesser laws. It's, it's the law. It's still here. It's still in effect. Well, and one thing to understand, too, is, is an in-depth study of all of our scriptures, not just the Old Testament or the New Testament, which, by the way, are translations that don't serve people very well. It is the first covenant and the renewed covenant. In the Doctrine and Covenants, when Joseph Smith revealed the new and everlasting covenant— That's what the New Testament should have been translated as, the title, New Testament. In the Hebrew language, it means the first covenant and the renewed covenant. So, what we're talking about here is all of the commandments, all of the explanation that comes through study of Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, what you get is a clear, clear day-by-day understanding of God's relationship with us and what God's willing to do to bring us back to Him. And none of that is exempt for us. None of it is inapplicable for us. Now, the mode of practicing it may change because, hey, we have cars and cell phones and computers now, which they didn't have at that time. However, the relationship between us and God was the very purpose of giving those commandments in the first place. That's beautiful. Now, you brought up before some of these holy days, and my wife and I had had some conversations in the past that included questions as to why we as Latter-day Saints, with with all that we connect to ancient Hebrew culture, and even pointing out Hebrew traditions that poked their head through the Book of Mormon at times, why don't we as Latter-day Saints join in with the various holidays and festivals that are celebrated? These are miracles being recognized of God's hand and blessing His people and so on. And, well, I know that, like Jeffrey R. Holland said, that our sacrament is our modern-day Passover. Would it be essentially cultural appropriation for a Mormon to start celebrating Passover, for example, in the more traditional sense? I absolutely believe not as far as cultural appropriation. Um, It is very common amongst our members. My own family celebrates Passover. Uh, We use a modified Haggadah, which is the script for uh, doing the Passover proceedings that helps include the Doctrine and Covenants and the Book of Mormon revelations on Christ. And actually, the beauty of the original script just shines when put in the light of Christ. Now, as to why other people don't, I believe that is 
cultural tradition and prejudice that has not been able to be done away with in uh, amongst the general membership of the church. It's mainly ignorance of the depth of testimony that comes and the actual meaning of the words and the practices for why those holidays were celebrated in both the Old and New Testament. Uh, the Even though there's a whole lot in the Old and New Testament about the celebration of these holidays, because it's translated to English and because the interpretation of culture has been added upon it, even amongst our LDS members, a lot has been lost in the cultural practices. And those who get exposed to the real meaning behind the words, those who do a deep study of the commandments behind the practices of these high holy days and the meaning behind the words that are used and the way they're celebrated in the scriptures, you can't help but understand why Christ commanded that we practice these and that they are still in force. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because one of the things that you talk about these cultural things that have been lost or changed through the years, there's so many things that we talk about and teach that basically make it sound like the God of the Old Testament is this harsh, cruel, judgmental person, which is should be very offensive to us as Latter-day Saints, seeing as we know that that is Jesus that we talk about. He is the God of what we call the Old Testament. And one of the things that I think we might miss because of this lost in translation syndrome is how beautiful the whole eye for an eye concept actually is practiced in Jewish tradition, as opposed to thinking that you're just making a bunch of blind people. Could you maybe, <laughs> could you maybe talk about how something as simple as that actually shows the love and mercy of Christ in his teachings, as opposed to this hateful, vengeful, making everyone blind kind of law? Yes. Well, first of all, you have to understand that at the time the commandments were being written in the time of Moses, we were dealing with people who had been enslaved for hundreds of years who had had no access to Scripture for hundreds of years and had been raised in polytheism in the religious tradition of the Egyptians. So, as they were, as Moses was receiving revelation, he was using language that would appeal to the people that he was communicating with in their time, in their language, and in their practice. It is the same reason that Christ spoke in parables during his lifetime, and he used symbolism such as the olive tree, or he used symbolism as a high wall being built around an orchard. Shepherds and lambs, he was using what the people had experienced and what they would connect with. So what you see specifically in... Um, where you see punishments being connected to actions, is actually, linguistically, there are, in, in Hebrew, there are symbolisms 
and numerical symbolisms, there are word symbolisms, and there are meaning symbolisms behind every single letter that is used in a word, and the word as a whole exists as a whole separate from its letters. And so when you see the duplication of words very close together in Scripture, what you see is an emphasis on the meaning of the whole more than the meaning of the parts. And we could get so deep into this, but studying popular releases lately have shown that even though Joseph Smith didn't know anything about it, and it's only a recent discovery long after the restoration of the gospel, the existence of chiasmus poetry in the structure of the Book of Mormon is one thing that shows Hebraic understanding of language amongst the writers of the Book of Mormon. The same thing exists in all of the commandments that are given throughout the Holy Bible, is poetry, meaning that is much deeper than the words that are used. So, I understand that your organization has meetings, gatherings that people can come to and they can discuss these issues and learn about them and things like that. So, when and where are these gatherings held? Correct. So, we are a growing organization, which under my leadership, we have added another city. So, we're super excited about that. For over 50 years, we have been meeting in Salt Lake City on the Thursday before General Conference. So, twice a year, the Thursday before General Conference at the Pioneer Stakes Center in Salt Lake City, we get together, we have a potluck dinner, and we have a speaker. The speaker's theme varies, and we're also always very prayerful in bringing the spirit. We have had musicians such as Lex Diazavedo speak. We have had Lislam and Swindle, an artist, speak. This most recent gathering, uh, we had a CES instructor speak to us about the language of the gospel. We also have gatherings in Washington State, Seattle area, and we are we just had our first gathering in the Mesa, Arizona area. Uh, we are actively seeking to have gatherings in other locations. What we need to have that happen is usually about 25 active members in an area or more, and people who truly believe in our mission and the way our organization seeks to support its members who are willing to step up and help that gathering get organized. Well, how does a person become a member of the organization? Do they have to prove some kind of genealogy or something? Or oh, absolutely not. In fact, we welcome any member who wants to apply and agree to treat our membership with respect. So even being a member of the LDS Church is not required for membership. We need name, phone number, email address, and mailing address. And our website is mormonsandjews.org. Pretty simple, mormonsandjews.org. And it is an extensive website. Uh, we have a YouTube channel connected to that for more recent gatherings. We have started uh, filming our firesides and making them available via YouTube. But there is a, a membership form 
to fill out on our website. And it simply is basically a request for contact from us. And we send out occasional uh, bulletins with uh, Jewish genealogical information, uh, with recipes, um, with research that's coming out. So there's new research coming out with Sephardi Judaism and new um, laws actually in the past few years have been passed relating to people who were driven out of Spain during the 1400s and people who are descended from them. So we keep abreast of the news of the day of what's going on related to Jewish genealogy, Jewish history, and what's going on in the world as far as the gathering of the kingdom of Israel. And so when new discoveries are being made in Israel or around the world, we'll send out a newsletter and let people know the great news. We also have a Facebook group that's active, has over 800 members in it right now. Um, Not all of our Facebook group members are members of the church or even of Jewish lineage. Some are just there because they love how we support each other in our differences. Hmm, Interesting. Well, we're a missionary-centric podcast, and we do hope that we aren't just sharing information for information's sake, but your group, B'nai Shalom, is not a missionary organization, doesn't advocate for campaigns targeted to people of the Jewish faith, but, but in what ways can a missionary or even a member missionary interact with your organization? Is it appropriate to bring a neighbor or investigator to a meeting or send someone to the site, or is that maybe not the best approach? We definitely recommend sending people to our site and always coming to our gatherings, absolutely. One of the biggest reasons for the existence of our organization is to provide social and spiritual support for people who tend to feel isolated. Our Mesa gathering was exactly that. There were three women who all lived within a couple of miles of each other who joined the LDS church from Jewish backgrounds and lived in the same stake for five years before they found out that each other existed. And it was the missionaries who were eating dinner in one of these women's home who had been a member for about five years, who happened to mention that they had been eating dinner with another woman who had been celebrating Passover that helped these women connect to each other. And now we have a beautiful organization. We had 40 people show up at our last gathering. There is an isolation sort of situation that tends to occur around Jews who enter the waters of baptism into the LDS church, both from their family and socially. So we view ourselves as a totally non-risk way to just see how the intersection of identities of being Jewish and being LDS can work. And we do have people who are not members of the LDS church come to our gatherings because there is no missionary pressure there. We do have missionaries come to our gatherings. They're always welcome to talk to our our members. Uh, It's more that we don't go out seeking people specifically because they're Jewish. When we do... Uh, advertise what we're doing, people come to us because that feeling of family and of connectedness and of being understood 
is very, very powerful. And that's how missionaries can really, truly help our organization and have us help them, is that when they do discover that someone is feeling lost or feeling unaccepted, regardless of their background, because they feel different than the normally stereotypical painted member of the church. That is exactly where our organization fits in. We are people who don't fit the norm, and we spiritually and socially support each other in that. And so as a missionary tool, I guess you could say, what we bring is just the ability to love people where they're at and love people that have questions about the way the LDS Church works and what we believe about Judaism and genealogy. I would love if the, to end this interview, and I'm putting you on the spot, I realize, would you be willing to maybe share your testimony, if you will, of how your cultural background has intersected with your Mormon faith and how it actually maybe has enriched it? Okay. Yeah, sure. Maybe a story can help me paint this picture of my testimony of how my Jewish identity has blessed my testimony as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When I was a teenager, I was very insistent that I develop my own testimony and that I was not going to be a member of this church just because my parents were, my parents said so, or my family said so. I went to my mom's family and asked to study Judaism with them. It took some doing. Um, My mom's family hadn't talked to her since she joined the church, which was 15 years before this time. I developed a connection with my great aunt that caused the reunification of my mom's family. We actually ended up getting to meet many of my aunts and my uncle and several family members that my mom hadn't seen in more than 15 years. When we got home from that experience, I had a dream. And in the dream, I was begging my family to be together with me for eternity because I could feel the love and the light coming from them. And I felt the Savior standing beside me, showing me how beautiful these people were that I had grown up without. As I have developed those relationships over the years, uh, what I have developed a very strong testimony of is Christ's personal relationship with each one of us and his love for each one of us where we're at right now with what we understand right now and that he wants more than anything for us to be unified as one family, as children of God. Every time I go through the Passover Seder and the various holidays, and I recite the prayers, I see Christ, and I see beauty and depth and understanding that I didn't get from anywhere else other than coming to love my family and my heritage. 
and from personal revelation. And if there's anything that can be said for this organization and the leadership of this organization, it's that every single one of us has received very, very strong, direct personal revelation testifying to us of the divinity of Christ and his love for the Jewish people and of our own personal roles in the restoration of the gospel and the gathering of the house of Israel. I can see so clearly why I was placed on earth for such a time as this and brought to be as a leader of this organization because God loves his children and he loves the house of Israel and he loves the very breath of the beauty that comes from the study of scriptures and the unification of understanding our history and where we came from. I can't say it any better than that. He loves us. And I feel it every time I do something to lead this organization to help us reach out and reach more people and help members of this church come to understand their own mission in unifying the house of Israel so that Christ can come again and fulfill his duty and his mission to us. Excellent. Well, I'll leave with this last bit of counsel here from Elder Ezra Taft Benson that I found at the top of your website, mormonsandjews.org. He says, we need to know more about the Jews and the Jews ought to know more about the Mormons. There's a subtlety to that statement that places some sense of urgency on members of the church needing to know more about Jewish cultures and traditions. And I think in so doing, we get to learn more about our own faith. So thank you, Chelsea Woodruff, for coming on the LDS Mission Cast and sharing these things with us. The website again is mormonsandjews.org. Thank you again, Chelsea. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. In an episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast, which is, there was an interview with Gail Boyd on Jewish Holy Days, I learned something in that episode that's helped me to shift my way of thinking and how I looked at the Law of Moses, and I wanted to share that with you. Gail, the guest on that podcast, spent years in Jerusalem among, among the people and absorbed their rich cultural traditions. One of the things that she shared in that podcast is how the people interpreted what we refer to as the Law of Moses, particularly that part where we talk about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, etc. I tried to allude to this in the interview with Chelsea, but it felt like we really didn't focus on that interpretation in the interview, which is fine, but it's worth sharing here. The Law of Moses is often made kind of a caricature by saying that when a person maybe blinds someone, their punishment is that they must also lose their eye. In other words, whatever you do to someone is done back to you. That's how some people interpret eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, kind of more of a revenge type thing. And while this might help deter some from doing harm to another, it somewhat misses the spirit of that law, which is what Jesus came to restore back and to fulfill when he came to earth. See, Gail shared how the people in Jerusalem see this law, and essentially what they do is if if you've had something done to cause you to lose your eyesight, then the person that did that to you promises to become your eyes. 
if I did something to injure your livestock, I don't harm my livestock, but I provide for that person in the way that that livestock would have provided for their family, be it meat, milk, income, whatever. See, the law of Moses' original intent was to help foster love of God and love of neighbor. Taking this approach allows us to see the repentance process where individuals make restitution for the wrongs that they have committed. This is less about revenge and justice and punishment and more about love, redemption, and restitution. Not only are individuals sufficiently deterred from doing harm to others, but this also fosters a spirit of community, of forgiveness and responsibility to each other. So perhaps when you read through the Old Testament or when you encounter teaching situations where you meet someone that has one of the many forms of Jewish backgrounds, perhaps we can view their traditions with a little more care and understanding. As we honor one another, we may find that they will in turn return that honor back. We can and should seek to build bridges of understanding with one another, and in so doing, our own faith may be enriched, and they may experience a change of heart as well. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of LDS Mission Cast. I cannot wait for you to tune into our next episode. We received a letter from a listener in Belgium. That's right, Belgium. Turns out he has a calling as a digital communications consultant for the area presidency in Europe. This means that he does the social media advertising that generates missionary referrals for the missionary program in Europe, but specifically in the Netherlands Amsterdam mission. It was such a delight to talk with him over Skype. To hear his lived experiences as a member of the church in Europe and receiving a pretty big calling after only being a member of the branch for three weeks. Such a great story. And it's really neat to hear from a listener to the podcast from the other side of the world and to hear some of the things that they're doing and the successes that they're having in missionary work over there. Thank you again for listening each and every week. Our numbers are growing but we would still love for you to share this podcast with your friends or anyone that you think would enjoy it. Remember, you can listen to this episode or any of our past episodes at ldsmissioncast.com or subscribe to us in iTunes, Google Play, or on Stitcher. Thanks for listening. 